G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey, and I'm joined by my dad, clinical psychologist Chris Mackey, and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings. G'day, Dad. How are you going today? Good, thanks, Rowan. How about yourself? Yeah, not too bad. Always good to be on the podcast. And oh, look, I must admit, I'm uh, I'm seen off the back of a cold today. So apologies for everyone out there. And if I end up doing my best Marlboro Man impression and go off in a fit of coughs, then uh, apologies. But uh, no, we're we're here and and very much looking forward to today's episode, Dad. Oh, look, I'll just mention. I imagine you've also got a slightly raspy voice from screaming at the football on the weekend. Oh, that'd have absolutely nothing to do. I reckon it would be an absolute coincidence that I lost my voice at the football over the weekend and it hasn't really come back yet. I reckon that's just completely unrelated, Dad. Well, it was only about a two-point win, so fair enough <laughs> to lose your voice there. And fortunately enough, we're on the winning side this time of supporting the local team, the Geelong Cats, so that was great. Absolutely. So, yeah, we, we record this on a Wednesday and, yeah, Saturday just gone. Big game, Geelong and Richmond, and still very much thinking about it uh, at this point, Dad. I basically haven't had a night off the footy this week at this stage, so very much been enjoying it. But... Looking forward to the podcast as well. It's good to get in some other things too. But we've called today's episode, What Makes Effective Therapy? So, Dad, do you want to just give us a bit of a brief overview? What are we going to be talking about today? Okay, well, when we think of effective therapy, most people, I think, are going to wonder about what kind of therapy techniques are meant to be the most useful for what kind of particular problems. And that's often how we're trained at university. These techniques or these therapy approaches have been found to help with these problems. But the main theme of our topic today is there's something other than the treatment techniques themselves or the treatment method themselves that's most important. And it's to do with the relationship between the therapist and the client. So we're going to elaborate on that today, the relationship between the therapist and the client, and hopefully an understanding of some of those things that make some of the greatest difference in a therapy relationship can help enhance people's experience of therapy if they're in therapy. It could be relevant to people considering seeking therapy, what might be important to them. But just for context, what we're talking about today is based on things that came up in a recent conference for counselling psychologists in Melbourne, a presentation by Bruce Wampold, who does lots of research on the effectiveness of therapy and looking at things like the therapy relationship. Well, it's an interesting one, Dad, and I must admit when we first spoke about doing this topic, I wasn't 100% sure exactly what, for example, you know, the relevance in a very selfish way to someone like me would be, Dad. But it's interesting what you say about the therapy techniques and how people do tend to focus on that sort of thing because I think it's, well, it's certainly true, and particularly maybe for someone like myself who you know, certainly hasn't studied psychology but is interested in it. You hear about certain things like whether it be you know, EMDR or psychodynamic therapy as opposed to CBT and all this sort of stuff. And you know, without knowing a whole lot about it, you know, it can be very interesting to hear about some of the differences and what some of those differences can lead to in terms of therapy outcomes and this sort of thing. But I suppose part of, of what today's podcast is about in some ways is that that's not the be-all and end-all in terms of you know, having a particular type of therapy, therapy technique, like with where things are at at the moment in terms of appointment availability and that sort of thing, like we're just not able to have the same amount of choice that we would in normal circumstances. So I think it is good to maybe emphasise that there are other elements to the therapy relationship which are good and maybe go a little bit beyond even just the techniques that are used. But I think the other aspect to that too is that 
therapy seems to be a very distilled type of relationship in terms of it's not as if someone has a therapist, it's not as if that's the only person in their life that they can talk about those certain things with. Like it might be a more intensified version of a type of relationship in a way, but I think there's also things from the therapy relationship, elements from that type of interaction in a way that we can whether it be take and apply it to other relationships, whether we can try and take a little bit on board ourselves in terms of how we sort of behave around friends who might need our support and that sort of thing. So I think there is more relevance in it than meets the eye, so to speak, in terms of it's not as if, you know, this podcast episode is just going to be relevant for people who, you know, are currently going through therapy. I think it is good to look at this sort of stuff, even as a bit of a tool and a vehicle to examine maybe some other relationships in our life or maybe the, some other types of relationships in we, ha- we have in our life or other elements of relationships that we have too. I think it's just a, a good way of looking at some of this sort of stuff as a, a very distilled way. Yes. So if we look at what helps in the interaction between a therapist and a client, we can think, well, do some of those elements that come up in that relationship, could they apply to, for example talking with a mentor, which will be a theme of our next podcast, or talking with a friend or drawing on a sounding board in some way, a trusted other person. If we know what can help in therapy, then that might help us generalise to see how we can also get benefit from talking about emotional issues with people that we trust. That'll be one of the themes. But certainly what's different when you recognise how important the therapy relationship is, is most of us who have trained as psychologists or as therapists have a preferred kind of approach at first. Like my main training at first, for example, was in cognitive behavioural therapy, which is a prevailing approach in Australia and, well, much of the Western world. But also my postgraduate training was particularly in psychodynamic therapy because I thought it was important to round out my understanding in certain ways. And what do you notice when you're studying in a particular therapy approach or a particular therapy school is therapists can be quite competitive in a way with each other and people who are teaching therapy approaches can sometimes be a bit dismissive of other therapy schools. So traditionally there's been a lot of dare I say, competition between cognitive behavioural therapy and particularly psychoanalytic therapy. Or something related to that is psychodynamic therapy, which to many cognitive behavioural therapists would seem that it's not based enough on research or psychodynamic therapy is a bit imprecise or loose or it's almost like anything goes. But people trained in a psychotherapy approach often think of cognitive behavioural clinicians as being way too superficial and not focusing enough on feelings or emotions. You get these biases or prejudices come into the field, almost like one football team vying against another. At times there could be quite heated feeling or dismissing the opposition, so to speak. But there's a lot of commonality between therapies and there's especially a lot of commonality in what helps make the most effective therapists. And it's around that kind of interaction, the kind of relationship between the therapist and client, we're highlighting those things today. Well, that shocks me to hear that there's dogma in an academic field, Dad. I'll tell you what, uh, blow me down with a feather. But uh, I think we better get into maybe some of the research behind today's podcast because I, I think it sets the scene well for particularly why we're talking about some of this saw a figure this week which really surprised me, Dad, anyway, but it was some research, and I think this was actually Bruce Wampole who was reporting on this research, but it was saying that people who sit with a therapist for 50 minutes a week 
get as much positive benefit from that as taking antidepressant drugs. So on the surface of things, that seems like an incredible statement to make. But do you want to just give us a bit of a sense of what that research entailed? Yes, there was some very extensive research done with a very large number of clients and therapists, I think over a decade or two, quite a number of years ago. And what they found for depression that cognitive behaviour therapy and drugs and another form of therapy, interpersonal therapy, had about the same results. They're just as effective as each other. It might have been when people had severe depression, there was an advantage of having drugs as well as cognitive behavioural therapy. But generally, these different kind of treatments worked about as well as each other. So it's amazing to think how talking itself can make as much difference is taking a pill for something which is seen as having a biological basis, depression. But here's something even more intriguing that Bruce Wampold reported, that if you look at therapists prescribing medication, so psychiatrists prescribing medication, and they looked at the most effective psychiatrists generally in terms of their results with their patients with depression, and they looked at the least effective psychiatrists with depression, And what they found is that when using a placebo, an inert substance, the more effective psychiatrists had a better outcome with the placebo than the less effective psychiatrists with the medication itself, with antidepressant medication for depression. So, wow, that's a different kind of result. It's like the relationship, the interaction between the psychiatrist and the patient in that situation is more important than the medication itself. Now, we're not going to tend to hear that kind of research reported so much because the vast majority of research in the mental health field is funded by drug companies. Drug companies are going to look to highlight the impact of medication itself, but this puts it in a different perspective. And there's the onus then, really, on health professionals to look to communicate well with the people that they're treating, the people they're seeing. But I think also when people are seeking some kind of treatment or therapy, to be aware of what makes a difference, including in the interaction, in the relationship, hopefully that awareness of what makes a difference will help keep on improving the standards of our mental health interventions. That is very interesting because I suppose the implication from that then is that, you know, obviously the therapists, that's, you know, a big part of it, but it's it's probably not necessarily the therapists in as much as it's you know being with someone who's supportive talking to someone about you know intimate things all this sort of stuff like like that really does suggest that it is something that can be reverse engineered outside of a therapy setting ah yes that's the point these things can partly be developed further or learnt or at least honed I think if health professionals know the difference that it can make when they're interacting, dare I say, more constructively with a patient, with a client, that's likely to add to the effectiveness of treatments. We know that this happens also with physical ailments, like with pain. There are aspects of dealing with pain where if a therapist is interacting with the patients that they're treating with, if you like, optimism and hopefulness and explain things well so the person feels more confident that the treatment's going to work, it does work better. These are partly from what we would call placebo effects, but placebo effects aren't nothing. If people expect things to work better or they're confident how it's going or they feel well supported with what they're doing, that actually leads to biological changes as well. And what we know about health treatments, whether it be for pain or depression or a whole range of other conditions, if people are given a placebo 
for pain or depression or a number of other conditions, the placebo leads to similar kinds of chemical changes in people's brain as if they've had the active substance. And that means that for antidepressant medication, about 75%, 75 to 80% of the effect of medication can be achieved by placebo. So the positive expectation that something can make a difference. So if we're aware of the impact of positive expectations on our mind and body and on our health, then we've got to be drawing on that. We've got to be milking that. And even if people know that they're getting a placebo, funny enough, for things like pain, it still works. It still works to quite some degree. So when we look at what are the kind of effective ingredients of therapy over and above the active treatments or the therapy techniques or the medication itself, then hopefully we can draw on those characteristics further. Well, I think it'd be really interesting to maybe break down a little bit more of what those effective ingredients are, because I was struck before as well by what you said uh, about that notion of, say, better therapists with placebos get the same outcomes as not as better <laughs> therapists uh, using antidepressants. Like, what makes a better therapist in some ways? And like, I think we'll, we'll unpack that in a little bit because I think it requires a little bit of unpacking. But I suppose a, a bit of a story of, of something I saw on a TV show came to mind the other day because I think it's an interesting notion that came to mind when you were talking about that there. And it's paining me to think what this was on. But I saw a TV show the other day and, you know, this fella goes along to the doctor and, you know, he's a little bit overweight. He doesn't necessarily have the best lifestyle. And I think he's quite well off in this TV show. And, you know, he goes along to the doctor. He's had a few health issues. And the doctor says, you know, mate, you know, you're going to have to cut down your drinking. We're going to have to cut down your sugar. We need you to have a little bit more exercise per week. And the fella sort of said to the doctor, hold on here, mate. Like, I'm the one paying you. Like, I'm paying you hundreds of dollars at the moment. Like, why is it me who has to be doing all the work here? But I think what you were saying before about what are some of the effective ingredients in therapy? Like, it seems to me part of that is on behalf of the therapist. You know, this notion of what makes a better therapist but also, there seems to be a bit of a notion of, well, you know, maybe we as the client have to do a little bit as well. Maybe we have to come to the table and maybe not just expect that the therapist is going to have a, you know, silver bullet that's just going to fix everything for us. And so maybe it'd be good to maybe delve into that a little bit in terms of what is some of the interplay and what is the role maybe of the therapist, what is the role of the client to ensure the most effective therapy, because I'm sure there'd be things that, that both people could do. So like maybe if we start with the client, so what could a client do in a therapy situation to get the most out of therapy? Yes, well, it is an interaction or a collaboration between the two, but starting with the client, one of the key things that's going to make a difference with someone seeking help for any kind of mental health problem and even any physical health problem is the person is going to take an active approach to helping themselves. There are things that people can do to improve their physical and mental health. So it's going to come down to that kind of action. But what might be the role of the therapist? Well, one of the main roles of a therapist is going to be an influence, an influence for the client on doing things that are helpful for the client's well-being. Now, that might include some knowledge that the therapist has and can impart about you're more likely to get return from this activity like exercise or changing your diet than from that one, for example. So there are particular things that might make a difference that way. But there's the influence itself. And 
you know, when we think about it, who are we going to be influenced by more rather than less? It'll be people that we have a good relationship with, that we feel understood by. We can say that the person gets us, understands us, and they get it, what we're talking about, what we're trying to bring up with them. Now, if people feel understood in, say, mental health circles, they bring up difficulties, they feel well understood, then that's going to make a big difference. But for people to feel understood and also if you like to be more responsive to someone else's influence to be more likely to follow through on what's advised to them and it make more sense to them then that's going to partly come down to some of the characteristics of the therapist as well what's well, uh it's bill i think it was it was on our facebook page actually in the last couple of days and, and shout out to mum sue Mackey who came up with this one but it's that old joke of uh how many psychologists does it take to change a light bulb just one, but the light bulb needs to want to change. <laughs> so I think that speaks to that notion too. But Dad, let's get into some of these elements of what makes a maybe a better therapist now to start us off here. I heard recently there was a study of a couple of hundred therapists, and I believe of those therapists, 25% of them all placed themselves in the top 10%. So it seems to suggest that maybe therapists, like I'm sure you know, many other groups of people in society, maybe overinflate their perception of their ability a little bit. But what actually does make a good therapist, Dad? Yes, and actually I'll add on to that kind of research. What they also found is that none of the 170 therapists placed themselves in the bottom half. There will be some in the bottom half. So yes, it's natural in life we'll tend to look at the way we do things and how we go through rose-coloured glasses. And we'll get to this at the end too. We'll mention towards the end of the podcast as well about the importance of monitoring therapy, having some kind of measure, some kind of objective gauge about how people are faring. And that's partly to get around that kind of bias that people can have when they think about how things are going. But when we think about what makes an effective therapist, they're going to be two main dimensions to it there'll be warmth if you like in the relationship and there'll also be competence and there'll be different aspects of these things but just say if we think of warmth there are a number of things that Bruce Wampole described this way shown to make a difference from the research one is being emotionally perceptive well that's fair enough we want someone to be able to pick up on what kind of ways we're thinking, feeling, reacting. That actually relates to a recent episode we did on mentalising. Having someone who gets us, they get an idea of what we're thinking, feeling, what our intentions are. So there's that emotional perceptiveness. Also that the person can be at least a little bit expressive, can respond in some kind of way that's meaningful to us. That can help rather than, dare I say, be a completely cold fish. And that might sound a bit funny to say that. We might think that might not be the case. But it used to sometimes be the case that therapists would think, or a number of therapists would think, you have to sit there very po-faced so you're not overly influencing what kind of things that the client's bringing up. And there might be a kind of theoretical idea behind that. But in human interactions, you want some kind of warmth, some kind of interaction. So not just being po-faced can help. You want a therapist to be able to focus on the other person with a lot of good understanding. So the person being really attuned to you, having a focus on you and the kind of things that you're saying, you want the therapist to be skilled in dealing with challenging interpersonal situations. So it's natural at times there can be some conflict that come up between 
a therapist and a client. It might be the client feels a little bit misunderstood in some way or they might not be convinced that a way that they're working is the most effective way. Or also the client might be in a situation of, dare I say, being triggered by past memories or difficult experiences that they've had or they might be relating to the therapist in a way that they're reminded of some previous interactions they've had with other people and maybe again they've been triggered in some way there. It's natural in therapy that there can be a degree of conflict that comes up and emotion that comes up with a therapist and client. So you want a therapist to have some level of assurance at dealing with that and some skill at dealing with that. And certainly you want a therapist to be able to be somewhat optimistic, to be hopeful for the person, to have those reflective skills and dare I say also maybe being somewhat humble, not just assuming that what they think is true. Well, that's interesting because what came to mind for me as you described that there is, you know, there's almost none of it relates to that kind of stereotype notion from a psychologist of, oh, how does that make you feel sort of thing in terms of like if a psychologist is emotionally perceptive, they're probably going to have a little bit of a sense of how that's going to make someone feel. Like even to ask that question in the first place probably puts you on the back foot a little bit as a psychologist. But it was interesting because I think that notion that you were saying there about, you know, a psychologist not wanting to overly influence someone, like I think that is obviously very important. But I also think like, you know, in recent years, for example, we've seen a huge shift of people move towards things like, say, life coaches and things like this. And I wonder if that is because possibly, you know, not always maybe with the the right answer at times, but people like life coaches are so ready to come in with an answer, with some advice. This is the definitive thing to do. And it seems to me that it's not necessarily a bad thing, but maybe there's a little bit more responsibility that falls upon the client with a psychologist to not necessarily just take advice without, you know, doing your own research and applying it to your own life in your own way. It's actually, well, you've got to take things on board in a certain way, but it actually involves a little bit of reflection on your own behalf as well. Yes, it does. And look, there are some situations where straighter kind of advice can help and people can have, if you like, somewhat more straightforward problems. Usually they're never completely straightforward, but just say if people present with problems with burnout, for example, and we had a previous podcast on that where people feel a bit overwhelmed from work stresses. Well, often it's almost as simple as reducing demands or bolstering resources, learning some stress management techniques, maybe some time management techniques, saying no more often to different kind of requests. But just that simple equation of reducing demands, bolstering resources, and often within a period of weeks, people are showing improvement. But what if people have been in several different long-term relationships that have had a lot more complicated aspects to them? Or what if people keep on losing jobs because of certain kind of ways that they're interacting with other people? Or what if people are having very frequent repeated depressions and it relates to complications in how they're relating to other people? Now, then it gets more complicated often and then it's going to be something to do with how the person relates to themselves and others. Well, in a therapy situation, it sometimes helps for those things to come to the fore, including potentially played out in some kind of conflict or reaction to the therapist. 
And as therapists, we understand that people are going to sometimes relive experiences of how they might relate to someone else who's close to them or relive experiences with a parent, for example. And those patterns can come up. The person can be extra wary. The person can, dare I say, be overly dependent. The person can be avoiding talking about certain kind of conflicts in certain ways. And this is where somewhat deeper therapies, if you like, that encourage that kind of deeper reflection, connecting the dots in understanding something about our past patterns of relationships and where they might have been a bit out of kilter and how we can use that understanding to help now, then it makes a big difference if there's a fair degree of warmth and acceptance and trust in that kind of relationship. Just giving advice isn't going to cut it. It's not going to be as straightforward as that. Well, it reminds me of, and it's, you know, one of the greatest insights into coaching I've ever heard, and, you know, of course, sports coaching, but I think any coaching where it was Ross Lyon, the former Fremantle AFL coach, he had this line about, it was a young player who'd had an indiscretion for whatever reason, it was, it was quite a bad indiscretion too, I remember, and he had this line about, you know, as a coach and as a football club, what we want to do is fundamentally support and challenge so you come from that place of support. You know, we spoke about last week about you know, having people in your corner. And I think, you know, you obviously want your therapist to be in your corner. But there maybe seems to be an element of challenge in there as well in terms of you don't necessarily want them just to be agreeing with you and, you know, like you're there for a reason. <laughs> you know, you want to be, I suppose, have your path moved in at least a subtle direction and it would be good to work with the therapist with that. But... I was interested in what you were saying, Dad, before about, say, for example, like burnout and this sort of stuff and how, you know, that almost that simple formula of, you know, you reduce demands or increase resources and then that can help with burnout, for example. Like, I know that, uh, like, speaking about warmth is one part of what makes a good therapist, but I believe the other part is competence. And it seems to me that competence could relate in some ways to, for example, just knowing those sorts of things, knowing that this is the you know, little formula, this is the little model or technique that works in this situation. But I imagine it's potentially more than that. It's not necessarily you know, that good psychologists just have good rote memory for lots of different techniques. So what actually makes up that other element of competence for a psychologist? Yes, and it's interesting that you mentioned, say, challenge there with effective relationships with, say, coaches and elite athletes and, well, anyone really who's looking to influence anyone else who's maybe stuck in some way. It makes sense that there might be some challenge there. But there are a couple of core elements to therapist competence. One, actually, is verbal fluency. So in other words, that there's some kind of flow to conversation and I suppose that reflects a therapist having some sense of what they're on about. They can draw on knowledge or experiences in a way that kind of makes sense and so that flows a little more easily. That's something that can help. You can imagine if you have lots of long silences where it's as though the therapist feels a bit stuck, that wouldn't give so much confidence, would it, about how things would go. But The other thing is persuasiveness. Now, persuasiveness is both like a characteristic of a therapist, but that actually does allow for training in different ways, I think, as well. For example, if people have done extensive training in the mental health field compared to doing a six-month course, we can imagine the techniques that people learn are going to be relevant. So there's going to be an aspect of persuasiveness to do with the therapist having some kind of approach or training or model or understanding that's hopefully developed over a period of time and some complexity and hopefully a lot of research behind it as well. So in other words, 
the therapist has got some kind of handle on a model or approach with practical strategies that might make a difference. But it could be quite different. For example, in the psychodynamic field, it could be partly looking to explore unconscious thoughts and motivations through things like interpreting dreams. Certainly mentalization would be part of it. But by the same token, in CBT, there might be drawing on behaviour therapy, what we call graded exposure, people taking a situation that they feel fearful of and approaching it bit by bit. Well, you can apply that not just to approaching dogs or heights with a phobia, but also approaching talking about painful feelings a little bit by bit. We can even think of that graded exposure in terms of dealing with emotions. But there can be different ways that different therapy schools talk about these things. There's actually often more overlap between them that might meet the eye. But having some kind of approach is going to help the therapist's persuasiveness. But there's something else there. The therapist will often be encouraging a client to go out of the comfort zone in some way, to do something that they don't want to do. Now, this can include talking about some kind of hurtful past experiences or reactions, situations where people feel triggered by certain things. It can include going out of the comfort zone to face a challenging situation. It can be encouraging people to assert themselves further in conflict situations that might be uncomfortable. There's a lot about therapy which is helping people get around avoidance, both situational avoidance, like not approaching certain situations or shying away from challenging situations, and what we call experiential avoidance. And experiential avoidance is when people might be suppressing or denying or blocking certain feelings or trying to block out certain negative reactions about themselves or not exploring so deeply some of the person's negative reactions towards themselves, if you like. So a therapist is looking to use compassion and understanding and warmth and empathy and acceptance to make it easier or more accessible for someone to talk about some things or approach things in a different way. But also there's an element of persuasion. The therapist is encouraging the person often to go out of their comfort zone or at least try something different, explore different ways of relating to other members of their family, exploring different ways of communicating, and certainly facing fears is often part of that. And so it seems to me that really relates to this notion that, you know, for example, as a therapist, what you're trying to do is you're trying to teach someone to fish in terms of, you know, it's, you don't necessarily just give them a salmon, you don't want to just, you know, give them a fish for the day. You actually want to teach someone in that situation to sort of have the resources to get through on their own. But it must be super tempting at times to, you know, want to give someone the fish, if that makes sense. Like, how do you, I suppose, navigate that as a therapist in terms of, I suppose a lot of the time you'd almost want to, whether it be fix the situation or you'd want to imprint an element of your own experience on the situation which worked for you, but it might not necessarily work for someone else. Like, I wonder if you could just give us a bit of a sense of maybe how to navigate that, I suppose, idea of maybe not trying to just fix someone with a quick fix that worked for you but wouldn't necessarily be as good for them. Okay, look, that's a really good question for getting it the heart of one of the challenges in therapy, which is when or whether to give advice. And there are two different ways of looking at advice that I find particularly helpful. Because often to therapists, advice can be like a little bit of a dirty word in a way, because it suggests almost the therapist is meant to be an authority for the client and might encourage the client to be more dependent, uh, to, can distract away from the idea that 
it'll work best for the client if they find their own solutions in situations, which is often true. So how do we think of advice, which is almost like being tempted to, in a sense, give the person the fish? Oh, here it is. This is what to do. That'll fix the situation. Well, one of the things that struck me was hearing that Freud himself was not too reticent in giving advice. Freud did give advice in different ways. So amongst the dream interpretation and the person lying on a couch and saying whatever came into their mind, perhaps, there were also times when Freud might make some comment about an aspect of their work or relationships and recognising from his understanding of a person that there were things worth putting to them in a certain way. So I think the first thing is advice need not be a dirty word. But by the same token, there can be a downside if it is almost distracting away from the client's active efforts to find a path that works for them, looking for that authority within themselves. And that's where my favourite quote about advice is from Carl Jung, who said the best thing about advice is that people so rarely follow it. And many of us could relate to that. We might have given advice to a friend or family member and look, quite frankly, it just didn't strike a chord. They weren't either ready to hear it or they didn't want to hear it or it didn't make sense to them or they thought that there'd be something that would work better for them. Well, that's all fair enough. All of us live our lives in a certain way. All of us are ultimately responsible for our own lives and it is best if we can find what works best for us. But that gets across the idea that it's far better if people find their own solutions to things, then a therapist is looking to deliver it to them. Some of the main exceptions being, for example, if someone has obsessive compulsive disorder and they have a compulsion of washing their hands very frequently and that's more triggered when they're under situations of stress or they face certain kind of cues, we know what works best with therapy. Often it's getting the person in the situation. They're confronted by the cues, for example, dirty hands or touching a particular surface that leads them to feel really uncomfortable and then resist washing their hands for quite a period of time until the urge to wash their hands comes down and they've tolerated the anxiety a bit. We know those kind of methods work and we give direction and advice about that. Or dealing with a phobia, someone has a fear of heights, it's worth practising getting up progressively, different heights, looking down, dealing with that and realise that your mind and body can adjust to that but there's more to it then. There's a lot of different tips and suggestions that can help with that. But some of these behavioural strategies or ways of changing habits, it's worth looking at advice. But generally, what's going to work best for all of us is finding our own ways through, especially in complex situations. We can draw on suggestions from others, but much of therapy is setting things up to help people reflect on their own feelings, thoughts, behaviour, identify what's worked better for them in the past, what's not worked so well, joining the dots about past influences, including in parenting and early child experiences, other kinds of significant experiences in their life, trauma, joining the dots about how things might have made a difference for them. And then there might be some strategies that help, but a lot of it is the person being more ready or encouraged or feeling confident enough to have a go at approaching a situation in a different way. And that's where the persuasion comes in. Techniques are relevant but the relationship is just as or more important than any particular technique. Well, it just seems to me with so many elements of psychology, you know, you just can't cut corners with some of this sort of stuff, Dad. And, but I know we've got a, a couple of things to go here on our list, Dad, before we finish up. Do you want to just mention some of the other things that it takes to be an effective therapist? 
Okay, and I'll mention a couple of others from Bruce Wampold, and then I'll just have a few observations of my own about what I think makes a difference. And some of the things that I think are interesting from research, it helps if the therapist has a degree of professional self-doubt. So if someone sees a therapist and they think that the therapist was, dare I say, having a very dogmatic or arrogant view of them or just a very definite view of them that seemed different from what the person thought themselves, well, that's probably not the most optimal kind of situation. So I think in that kind of situation, it's fair enough for a client to raise the question or at least flag or indicate that they don't feel that that sits so well for them or at least that they've got questions about it because dogma doesn't help in that kind of situation. The other thing that helps, of course, if the therapist seems engaged rather than a little bit disinterested or at times people, quite frankly, can be burnt out, like they're sort of as though they have so much on their plate that they've been distracted, they might have so many different kind of demands on them. Well, if the person feels that a therapist's not being so attentive to them, well, again, that's not going to be so effective. So they're things that we can consider more from the point of view of therapists. It's good to have a degree of humility. It's important to be present, if you like, for each session, each encounter that we have. But the other kind of things that I would say, just to sum up a number of what I consider most important. I think effective therapists are going to be actively encouraging the person to take action in some way, some kind of different action. If a person's experiencing therapy and they haven't got any idea in their mind how they might constructively do something themselves that helps between, say, one therapy session and the next, I think something is missing. And I think if people are experiencing therapy and they've got no idea or they're just really unsure what they might do in between sessions to further some improvement, even if they're mainly being prescribed medication, seeing a psychiatrist, I think it's fair enough for someone to actively ask that question because we know people being actively engaged in looking to help themselves is going to make a big difference. Then I think having some clarity around some tasks or goals, like certainly in the CBT field, cognitive behavioural therapy, we talk about homework exercises. It doesn't have to be as explicit as that, but some, again, practical things that people can do and understand the relevance of that. And With that, I think when in therapy, it's fair enough for a person to look for something new in understanding from the therapist. You're looking for something if you like suggestions or guidance that you're not just going to get from a best friend or your next door neighbour, you want something in addition to that. And then I think something particularly important, and not all therapists will do this or not all therapists might agree on this, but we know it makes a difference, is therapists having some objective way of gauging progress. So it's not just based on the subjective thing. This gets back to the notion that virtually no therapists will think that they're performing in the lesser 50% of therapy results, if you like. How do we get around that? We need some other way of measuring it. So, for example, in our practice and many other practices, we use some kind of questionnaire measure, for example. This doesn't replace the person's feedback themselves about how they're feeling or acting differently or feedback they're getting from family members about how they seem to be faring better in some ways. Like There are other things that are more important, I would say, than questionnaire results. But questionnaire results are objective in looking at measuring well-being or anxiety or depression symptoms, for example, 
And as an example in our practice, in addition to questionnaires that look at anxiety and depression, we also have a questionnaire that looks at not just negative emotions, but also positive emotions. Another one looking at satisfaction with life. Because what we measure will tend to improve. It keeps your focus on that. And what we see in our practice is we see that at least two-thirds of people are benefiting on those measures. Around 70% of clients will be benefiting on the positive affect and the negative affect measure. So the positive well-being is enhanced as well as reducing negative distress, if you like. And satisfaction with life is improving, certainly for at least around about 55-60% of clients. Now that might sound like, well, you'd like it to be even more, but for people to have improved satisfaction with life, that often involves somewhat deeper changes. It often means that people are feeling better about their relationships, their work, their life circumstances. So that could be a substantial thing. And we know that overall, from therapy research, there'd be evidence that about 50% of clients would be getting significantly better. Now, we'd like it to be more like 80 or 90%, of course, be about 50%. Now, there'll be a proportion of other people who are getting better, but it doesn't show up enough statistically for us to call it significantly better. So you need to have quite some improvement for that to show up. But it's nice to know that more than half people are going to be improving in certain kind of ways. But the goal of therapy and mental health services is always to improve, to get even better results. And that's been one of the themes of this podcast today. If we look at what can help the effectiveness of therapy, and that very much includes the relational aspects, the therapist-client relationship, being aware of that, hopefully it helps that improve. Oh, certainly, Dad. And, you know, I was interested by what you said there about homework because, uh, you know, not everyone likes homework, but I think it's a good point. And also, obviously, I imagine there'd be elements of the therapy session itself. There could be homework that comes from, but also I imagine part of it would be reiterating that the homework could be things like, you know, go for a nice walk outside, go for a hit of golf, enjoy a nice meal, get good sleep. Have your friends around and, you know, bring up one or two things that, you know, you you might want to mention to someone. Like, it'd also be, you know, maybe getting back to some of maybe the fundamentals of of how to go about some of the, you know, behavioural activation sort of stuff. If I put my clinical hat on and, you know, we talk about depression sort of stuff. Like, getting these activities and these routines in place, like, they can really help your mental health in itself. And, you know, there's obviously a huge emphasis on things like drugs and, you know, antidepressants and, or probably should say antidepressants, not drugs, but antidepressants, anti-anxiolytics, like the pharmaceutical sort of stuff. But there's also so many other things that we can do, whether it be exercise or having a good chat with a good friend or, you know, going out of our way to support someone who might be in need of help. It seems to me that, you know, it's not just about looking for that, you know, silver bullet for lack of a better term. It's not necessarily just about looking at what the therapist can do for me as a client. It's also about going, well, you know, what can I come to the table with to get the most out of this relationship? And it seems to me that, you know, that could be an element of challenging a therapist on a few things. Like, it seems, you know, I suppose part of what we're talking about today is this idea that the relationship is two ways a little bit. It's not as if a client comes in, the therapist sits there and looks at them like a blank canvas and they think, well, we'll apply this therapy technique or I heard this works and so here we go dust the hands off all done like life's just not that mechanical so I think the more that people can realize that it is two-way like I imagine you learn things from your clients all the time too dad like it would be a two-way relationship beyond that maybe stereotype notion of 
you come in and you sit on a couch and you divulge everything under your lid that's causing you trouble and all that sort of stuff. So I think it's highlighted to me anyway, Dad, that there's certainly things that we can do, even if we're not a therapist, to maximise the most out of these sorts of relationships. Yes, and just a couple of things there. Early on mentioning the word homework, I'll just describe I virtually never use that word with clients or very rarely. But what we mean by that term, which will certainly be mentioned at conferences or workshops or in training, therapists are often taught about maybe setting homework. What it really means is seeing that the person has an idea of something practical they can do between sessions. And like you're saying, there are many things that people can do apart from sitting with a therapist or engaging in a therapy process. It also includes things like yoga, meditation, taking up classes, taking up physical exercise in whatever way, or having a hobby that moves us. People can get a lot of gain from going on a hike for several days. People can get gain from dealing with challenging circumstances and facing moderate stress for a period of time and finding that they got through that, just life circumstances, or dealing with COVID and finding that we had ways of adapting to that. That has many of the benefits that people can get from therapy, as in having more confidence for dealing with adversity. Drawing on social supports, different things that we enjoy in work and play, experiencing flow or being engaged in things in our life. Like you were saying, there's so many things that we can do apart from talking and apart from learning from a therapist. But yes, some of the things that we benefit learning from a therapist, we can also benefit from talking with a trusted other, including a mentor. So I'm glad we can talk about some of those things next time as well. Absolutely. As you say, we will speak about yeah, mentors a little bit more in the next session and confidence and yeah, apply these ideas maybe outside the therapy room as well. And I will just mention that as well to add to your extensive list of things that we can do, maybe heading along to the MCG on a Saturday afternoon when all the top eight in the AFL are playing each other for the first time in 30 years. I think there's a... Uh, there's plenty going on at the moment that we can look at in terms of uh, good, fun stuff to enjoy. Yeah, fair enough. And uh, look, I do have a bit of advice there. If people do that and go to the MCG, well, if they want to keep their voice, they don't <laughs> have to yell at the top of their lungs. Oh, fair enough, Dad. I was, uh, I was there with a friend who's never been to an AFL game before and so I did feel a little bit incumbent upon me to show him, you know, with great gusto every tackle that you have to yell at, ball, yeah, all that sort of stuff. So... Yeah, oh, okay, no. so you're demonstrating that positive thing about a therapist. <laughs> they call it effective expressiveness. It sounds as though emotionally, effectively, you are fairly expressive. Uh, I think maybe a little bit too expressive, Dad, as I look back upon it now. But, Dad, just before we finish up, I will just mention a couple of things. Of course, we've got the website where we'll put all the resources for today's episode up at psychspiels.com.au. We've also started an Instagram page, Dad, and as I mentioned before, you know, Mum, who's who's here in the practice, she's been doing some great work on that as well, and so at Chris Mackey Psychology is the handle for that one. If you just type in Chris Mackey Psychology on Instagram, I'm sure that will come up there. The other thing as well is we've created some starter packs for the podcast, so if you go to chrismackey.com.au forward slash starter packs with starter packs or one word there i'll put this link up on sykespeels.com.au basically we've just got a whole bunch of categories there so if you're new to the podcast or fresh to the podcast first of all welcome it's great to have you on board but 
If you do want to head along and have a bit of a curated selection of, of episodes under some categories there, we've created some orders of, of things, Dad, that maybe things could be listened to in the best order and this sort of stuff. So chrismackey.com.au forward slash starter packs for that one. And oh, Dad, I will just mention as well, if you know anyone out there who'd, who'd enjoy the podcast, please pass it on. It's, you know, I think with what we've all been going through recently, it's, all, it's always good to get a bit of mental health information out there and and I find personally dad podcasts are such a good way to introduce a subject with someone you can bring up something a little bit indirectly by saying oh, I heard this good podcast recently start a conversation about something without having to I suppose really bluntly get into it so hopefully someone out there has enjoyed this podcast and, and will know someone out there for that will enjoy it as well so thanks for chatting with me about all this today dad I'll look forward to the next one Good, Rowan, and you've done a great job with those starter packs. Great to compile the similar kind of themes together.